if you're turning with me in your Bibles, I'm going to start in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 14. We're going to be back kind of where we were last week, but we're going to look at the second half of the story because I, I cut it in half last week. So uh, this week we're going to go back and look at the second half of the story, kind of a part two. But today I want to talk to you um, again about moments. Last week we talked about moments. We talked about epic moments, about defining moments, about life-changing moments. And how you can look back over your life and, and you can point to these moments in your life. And a lot of times when the epic moment shows up, when this defining moment is happening, it doesn't look like anything great or epic. Two people can be in the same moment and get very different outcomes. Um, so start thinking about the moments again. And uh, We also talked last week about fighting for your future. About running up the hill and about when you choose to fight for your future. For your kids. For yourself. For when, and that sometimes fighting looks like faithfulness. Fighting looks like doing what you're called to do. Obedience and discipline. You know, when you're a child, you can have or be a, a part of defining moments of those epic or life-changing moments. But you don't choose them when you're a baby. When you're a child, you don't choose those moments. You don't choose your parents. You don't choose where you're born. You don't choose where you grow up. You don't choose who your babysitters are. You don't, you get it. When you're a baby, you can have big, epic moments, but it's not something you chose. You didn't write the first few chapters in your book because you were a baby. At some point, you got old enough to start making decisions on your own and start writing your own story. But babies don't choose. But as you mature, you can choose to seize the moment. You can run up the hill. You can fight for your future. You can grow or not. It's up to you. Just because you're living a long time and getting older doesn't mean you're growing spiritually. That's up to you. You make the choice. The power to choose is the power to create. And the power to create is what makes us look like God. That's what makes us look like our daddy. We were created in his image and he's the creator. It makes us look like him. So look at somebody and say, grow up. Some of y'all enjoyed that a little too much. Now, you can look back at them and say, make me. <laughs> That's what we always used to say to each other. Make me. Pick that up. Make me. <laughs> the thing is, no one is going to make you grow up. It's on you. Spiritually, 
we're all supposed to be growing as we take in the Word and as we eat spiritual food and we come in here and we drink. We're supposed to be growing, but it's on you. That's up to you. I can't make you grow. You can blame it on the pastor if you want to, but that's not on me. You got to eat to grow. Are you hungry? A child misses moments. They don't see the moments when they come. They don't have the ability or the strength to run up the hill or to seize the moment or fight for their future. They miss the moments. And they don't contribute to the family. They're cute. A baby's sweet. But they don't pay bills. Even Sky's 11 years old. My youngest, he started contributing to the family. He takes out the trash. Occasionally. We ask him a lot. He started to contribute. But he still doesn't pay bills. Haven't paid any of them. They don't teach. They don't really contribute. But a mature member of the family contributes and orchestrates moments that create the future. Me and Jesse, as the parents and as the adults, we actually orchestrate moments, plan things out, teaching moments to grow the boys into men. Babies don't plan stuff out. All right, so... Last week, we started with the story where King Saul was scared to death. And the Philistines had taken over and strategically taken out all the blacksmiths. And so then they took up all the weapons. It was the first weapon control that we have recorded. And so they had hardly any swords. They had hardly any weapons and a ragtag army was dwindled down to about 600 men and they were all hiding under a tree. And Jonathan got up when nobody knew and just him and his armor bearer snuck out so his dad wouldn't talk him out of it. And he decided to seize the moment to run up the hill. And he had the worst military strategy ever. All right, here's the plan. We run out and we show ourselves to him horrible idea if they say stay there we'll just stay there and die but if they say come up we'll know that God gave us the victory so they said hey look the Philistines are coming the uh, Israelites are coming out of their holes and they yelled down to them hey come up here we want to show you something and so that's kind of where we left off the story last week and then we went and talked about the spies and the going into the promised land and stuff, but I want to pick back up right there. 1 Samuel 14, verse 13. And Jonathan climbed up upon his hands and upon his feet, and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer slew after him. Jonathan's like, come on up. And he takes off, crawled up there, 
It says they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer slew after him. If you read some other translations like the Message Bible, it says that Jonathan was knocking them down and his armor bearer was smashing their heads with a rock. At first I thought this is a weird strategy, but then I thought, you know, we talked last week about how the Philistines had taken all their weapons and all their blacksmiths so they couldn't make weapons. So now it makes sense. Jonathan's knocking them down and his armor bearer don't even have a good weapon. He's just picking up rocks. Smacking them in the head. And the first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within, as it were, in half an acre of land which a yoke of oxen might plow. And there was trembling in the host. And in the field, and among all the people, the ground started to shake. There was a trembling all around, and the garrison and the spoilers, and they also trembled, and the earth quaked. So it was a very great trembling. So Jonathan and the armor bearer run up the hill. Jonathan starts knocking people down. The armor bearer starts smacking them in the head and the ground starts shaking and the people start shaking and the army starts shaking. And then there's a great earthquake. So God shows up after they ran up the hill. Then God kicks in and starts shaking the earth. Okay, I'm going to do something. We're about to do something big. This is going to be an epic ground shaking moment. God kicked in after they ran up the hill. Wow. It's convenient. Good timing for an earthquake. Right when they needed some divine intervention. There's no way two guys are beating thousands of Philistines. Jonathan needed God to come through. And it felt like it was just him and his buddy and the ground started shaking. Bam. An earthquake. But as I thought about that, and I've read that story before and not really even talked about the earthquake. I mean, we're like, yeah, God sent an earthquake and it messed up the Philistines and they couldn't fight and it confused them and all that. But Jonathan had to sit through the earthquake too. And the ground was shaking for him and the armor bearer too. I think the problem is a lot of times when the earth starts to quake and things start to shake and tremble, we get scared and run back down the hill. When God shows up and life feels too big and we run away, we run back down the hill. See, we want God to make our lives easy. But God, I thought if I'm serving you, and, and if I'm running up the hill and stepping out in obedience and I'm walking in purpose, wasn't my life supposed to get easy? You said I would have peace and I don't have peace. And he said, I'll give you a peace that passes understanding, a, a peace that doesn't make sense. Like you can have peace in the middle of running up the hill and into battle. And you can have joy and hope and love, but it's not because everything's easy. It's not because you don't ever have to walk through anything. We get the wrong idea. We want God to make it easy and we don't realize that the easiest moments of life will be the least significant moments. The easy moments 
Nothing big happens. You don't need God to come through. You don't need a miracle. You don't need strength. You don't need... They're the least significant moments of your life. So run up the hill. Believe that you can make a difference. You can't change the whole world. But you can change something. You can't fix every problem, but you can fix one. So what are you saying? Create a moment. That's what Jonathan did. He created that moment. If he didn't run up the hill, nothing would have happened. Create a moment. Let's read a little bit more. Um, Where did we stop? Verse 16. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude melted away. So they're looking. Remember, nobody knows Jonathan and his armor bearer up there kicking butt. Now there's a big earthquake, and they're looking, and they see these thousands of Philistine soldiers, and the way it says it there is the multitude melted away. Like think about something melting. They're seeing them like melt away. What? Wait a second. What in the world's going on? And they went on beating down one another. Then said Saul unto the people that were with him, Number now and see who is gone from us. And when they had numbered, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul sees that like something's happening. There's a huge commotion going on up there. And Saul's like, quick, count the people, find out who's missing. Find out what genius went up there and picked a fight. We were trying to hide. We're going to lose this one. Count, find out who it is. He knew that someone created the crisis. You got anybody in your life that just seems like they always like to make a crisis out of everything? They're always, yeah, well, that's kind of annoying, but you know what's even more annoying, really annoying? Is that person that creates the crisis that you need when you're hiding. The person that does something that makes you Move. It gets you out of your fear. It's pretty annoying when it's a good crisis. You know you're in an epic moment when life is bigger than you. And when you become the sign of what God is doing. Jonathan became the sign of what God was doing in the world. That's an epic moment. Now, if it had been anyone else in the army that ran up that hill, you know what Saul would have said? Oh, well, he's dumb. I guess he'll die. But when they came back and told him it was Jonathan, his son, the one he loved. Uh oh. See, Saul never thought that he was going to win this war. He was scared. He thought it was over. 
That's why he was hiding. There's no way 600 men could beat these thousands and thousands of trained, armed warriors. That's why he was hiding under the tree. So when Saul prepared the army, and when Saul, we're about to read, called for the ark and called for the priest, and they prayed, and, and they prepared to run up the hill in battle, Saul never thought he was going to win. He thought he was going to die that day. But he would rather run up the hill and stand shoulder to shoulder with his son than to let his son die alone. Because of the relationship. Even though Saul was scared. He came up the hill and so did the whole army. With him. And Saul said unto Ahai, Bring hither the ark of God. For the ark of God was at that time with the children of Israel. And it came to pass, while Saul talked unto the priest, that the noise that was in the host of the Philistines went on and increased. It started getting louder and louder. Now that's how they talked to God. He was trying to talk to the priest and He's calling for the ark, and, and the noise got louder and louder. And Saul said unto the priest, Withdraw thine hand. You know what that means? Withdraw thine hand. You can go look it up. It's worded in different translations and stuff, but it, it literally means stop what you're doing. Saul said to the priest, Stop what you're doing. What was he doing? Praying. Priest was praying. Saul said, Stop praying. So here's your Bible verse. You never think there was going to be a Bible verse that tells you to stop praying, right? Why did he tell him to stop praying? Because it's time to act. Last week we talked about waiting on God and how we use that as an excuse. Well, I'm just waiting on the Lord. Let me pray about it. I'm going to keep on praying about it. And we pray and pray and pray and we never do. Look at what God is doing. And do. Jonathan was already up the hill fighting. Saul said, stop praying. Let's go. Stop praying about it and do something. Well, I'm waiting on the Lord. You're not waiting on God. Can I tell you that? He's waiting on you. He's waiting on you to step out in obedience. You're not waiting on Him. The Scripture, when it tells us to wait on God, the only time in Scripture that I can find whenever we're told to wait on God is when we're running out of fear, when we're running away, God says, wait. Not because we're going so fast, He can't catch us. That's kind of arrogant. Well, I wish God would hurry up and get on my speed because I'm ready to go. No, come on. God's been waiting on me for a long time. Our thoughts and prayers are with you. You heard that? Thoughts and prayers are fine, but they better be followed by care and action. That's compassion. 
Thoughts and prayers are sympathy. They got to be followed with care and action. At some point, you got to do. So Saul said, Withdraw thine hand. Stop praying. And Saul and all the people that were with him assembled themselves. Remember, that's 600. 600 men. And they came to the battle. And behold, every man's sword was against his fellow. And there was a very great discomfiture. Moreover, the Hebrews that were with the Philistines before that time, which went up with them unto the camp from the country round about, even they also turned to be with the Israelites that were with Saul and Jonathan. So, the traitors. There was a whole bunch of Israelites that jumped ship. They were traitors. They betrayed their brothers. They hurt them in the deepest way by joining the Philistine army. They had been, a lot of them had been with the Philistines for years. They were trained in war by the Philistines. They were given weapons and armor. They went to the dark side. They left God. They left God's people. And at this moment, they all turned back to follow Saul and Jonathan. They came back. Who could have known that the army that Jonathan needed to back him up was behind enemy lines? That the training that the army needed was gotten out there, away from the family, away from the church. The weapons that were needed were gained outside from the enemy camp. God was preparing people that walked away, people that hurt, people that betrayed, people that backstabbed, People that chose other things over God and His house and the church were getting the resources, the education, the weapons, what was needed to win the war. And when Jonathan had the boldness to make that epic moment and God came through with the earthquake, guess what? All those people came back. That was the army and the weapons that they had to have to win. Jonathan, Saul, and his 600 band of ragtags with no weapons could not have won. God will send them back. Look what else happened. Verse 22, Likewise, all the men of Israel which had hid themselves in Mount Ephraim When they heard that the Philistines fled, even they also followed up hard after them in battle. These jokers were hiding in caves and in the hill country. They were so scared, nobody had seen or heard from them. Nobody even knew what side they were on. They were just hiding off in the woods. And when they heard what was going on, they followed hard in battle. 
bandwagon fans. Now, a lot of people get real aggravated about bandwagon fans. And it is, it is kind of annoying sometimes. You see a lot of Patriot fans show up. Or, you know, when the Eagles were in the Super Bowl, I, I love how so many Eagles fans show up. Well, don't you know I'm from my grandpa's second cousin went to Philadelphia one time. I've always been an Eagles fan. The bandwagon fans jump on the wagon when you're winning. But there's nothing wrong with bandwagon fans because it creates momentum, it creates excitement, it creates strength, power. So all the bandwagon fans came running out of the caves and the holes and the hill country and they came running down and they joined the fight and all the Philistines were running and backing off and they were winning. The Israelites were winning, taking ground. So the Lord saved Israel that day. And the battle passed over to Beth-Avon. 10,000 strong. They went from 600 men to 10,000. That's pretty impressive. Was it 9,400 9, men were added to the army that day? And a lot of them had weapons. That's a plus when you're in an army. 10,000 strong. They were just waiting on a ground-shaking moment. They were waiting on a moment. A moment that was created by a mature son. And they came home. And they won the battle. And the enemy was on the run. Babies don't create moments. They just experience other people's moments. They don't contribute to the family. They can't afford to give. They don't have time to serve. God has given you victory. God has called you His sons and daughters. And and He set you free and He gave you victory. And... The Bible is full of promises that God has for you and for me and for his kids. Things that he promised us and, and power and healing and the works that I do shall you do and greater works than these. The Bible is slammed full of promises, but his promises are optional. His love is a given. His grace is given, but his promises are optional. And it's easier to say that, oh, God doesn't move like that anymore. God doesn't move like He did back then and give the power like He gave to Elijah. Or God doesn't do miracles like He used to in this day and age. Or, you know what, God, maybe those promises aren't for this time. It's easier to say things like that, which I've heard. It's easier to say that than to consider the fact that we aren't mature enough to handle what He has for us. 
The hard part is that in the natural, next year, you'll be one year older than you are right now. There's nothing you can do about it. You're the youngest right now that you'll ever be. I don't know if you've thought about that, but right now, this is the youngest you'll ever be. Enjoy it. Ten years from now, you'll be ten years older. No way around it. Nothing you can do. But that's not the case in the Spirit. You can park right here in the Spirit and not grow. And 20 years from now, you can be in the same place you are right now in the Spirit. You can still be a baby, needing a bottle, wanting somebody to feed you. Take, 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 not contributing to the family. Some people have been saved for 70 years and they're still babies. They can't help anybody else. They're saved and they're loved by God and they're His son or daughter and they're going to heaven. They're covered by grace, but they're babies. They just cry and whine. And it's okay when it's a baby. A baby's like, if I see my niece Azalea sitting there sticking her foot in her mouth, it's kind of funny and cute, and I'm impressed with the agility. But if I walk in and see Ben sticking his foot in his mouth, it's disgusting. He's not a baby. Sorry, Ben, you were just a guy I saw when I looked up. But that is disgusting. Although I'm still impressed with the agility. Wait, back on track. Uh, Things, (laughs) please don't do it. Point is, you should grow out of certain things. Malachi does dumb things. Okay. (laughs) And we say, oh, it's, remember, I'll say to Jesse, remember, he's 16 means he's going to do some dumb things. we got to teach him and grow him to be as awesome as we are. (laughs) As you grow, you should mature. And we know that in the natural. It's funny to even talk about it in the natural, like you should grow up. The terrible twos, we talk about a little kid pitching a fit and screaming a tantrum at two years old and... We even have a name for it. The terrible twos. But they're still doing it when they're 32. That really is terrible. That's a problem. Why are you not growing? Do you need to go to an institution? Do we need you to see a psychologist? Do you need a therapist? There's something not working here if you're not growing. Like, no one would even argue with that. She's 43 and she acts the same as she did when she was two. That's a problem. But in the spirit, we got a lot of people that spend a lot of time not growing. They're still babies. Where to get back to my notes? Find out where I was. Hmm.
Let's read, um, let's read Galatians and we'll close. Galatians 4. Look what Paul wrote to the Galatians. Galatians 4, verse 1. I'm going to read it in the Message Bible. Just because I like how it, how it words it. We'll have it up on the screen behind me if you want to read along. I'm going to start in verse 1. Um, Paul's just talking to the Galatians about Christ's family and now that we're all part of God's family and in Christ that we're all we're a family and he says let me show you the implications of this as long as the heir is a minor or a child he has no advantage over the slave Though legally he owns the entire inheritance, he is subject to tutors and administrators until whatever date the father has set for emancipation. That is the way it is with us. Remember, he's talking about now in God's family, in Christ's family. When you were saved, after the cross, when Jesus paid the price for you, now Paul's saying in God's family, this is how it is with us. A baby is no different than a slave until he's reached the right age, until he's matured to whatever level the Father has set. That's the way it is with us. When we were minors, we were just like slaves, ordered around by simple instructions. Or remember the law? God gave the law to the children of Israel. The law, it was ordered them around. Give them instructions. They were like slaves to the law. And Jesus came to bring a new way. Jesus came to bring relationship so that we didn't have to be under the law anymore. The tutors and administrators of this world with no say in the conduct of our own lives. But when the time arrived that was set by God the Father, God sent His Son, born among us of a woman, born under the conditions of the law, so that He might redeem those of us who have been kidnapped by the law. Thus we have been set free. Why? To experience our rightful heritage. The law was there to keep us safe. But now it's about relationship. We saw a great analogy of that this week in, uh, in warrior training in this book that we're reading. It gave the analogy of like the law is a fence around a playground. It's the fence is a rule. You can't go out of this fence. It, it keeps the child in. It keeps danger out. It, it's there to keep them safe. But when dad walks into the fence and grabs the little child by the hand, they're free to walk outside the fence holding dad's hand. And they're actually safer holding dad's hands than they were in the fence anyways. That's the freedom that we have in God. That's what Jesus did was came and said, hey, I'm going to restore relationship. Hey, I'm going to grab you by the hand because you're my son, you're my daughter. And now you don't have to worry about that fence. And, and people would come to Jesus and be like, but yeah, well, 
well, what's the most important law or what part of the law is the most important one? And Jesus is like, I came to bring a higher law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself and then you'll fulfill the whole law anyways. Grab dad's hand and walk with him. If you love God and you love people, you're not going to break the laws. You're not going to murder somebody. You're not going to be committing adultery. You're not going. If you're loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then it's about relationship. Now, it's not about the law. Now, fully adopted and adopted as His own children, because God sent the Spirit of His Son into our lives, crying out, "Papa, Father." Some translations say, Abba, Abba, Father, Daddy. Doesn't that privilege of intimate conversation with God make it plain that you are not a slave but a child? And if you're a child, you're also an heir with complete access to the inheritance. He's given it all to you. You received your inheritance when Jesus died and restored the relationship. Everything that you need to do all that he's called you to do, to walk in purpose, to to live a victorious life, to, to have the power that you need in those moments, to walk in freedom, to walk. He's, he's given it to you. You need to know that you're a son. You know that you're a daughter. You know that the inheritance is yours. And now you got to grow up to receive the inheritance. Because when you're a baby, we just read it. You're the same as a slave. You're part of the house. You're taken care of. But you don't get access to the inheritance. You don't get access to all that the Father has given you. When a baby puts his foot in the mouth, it's cute. I already jumped the gun and said that part of my notes. God will give you what he promised because you're his child but he will not give it to you as long as you're a child he'll give it to you because you're his child but he won't give it to you as long as you're a child gotta grow up Adults know that choices have consequences. They take responsibility for their choices. Kids don't. They just do. Adults get to choose who they hang out with. Kids, their parents choose. You ain't hanging out with her no more. Come back with that kind of attitude. It's how you act when you come back from your grandparents' house. I guess we're going to have to have a coming home from Ma's house spanking. But as an adult, you choose. I'll close with this. What if your dad bought you a brand new car the day you were born. For some of you, that baby would be a classic right now, worth a lot. 
for me, it would be just old enough to not be cool, but <laughs> I'd have me a sweet 82 something. <laughs> 1982 Buick LeSabre or whatever, I don't know. <laughs> but hey, <laughs> if your dad bought you a brand new car the day you were born, And he took the keys, and he told you, son, daughter, this is your car. You can have it to drive anywhere you want. I want you to be able to get where you need to go. I want you to be able to take your friends places. I want you to be able to help people. If somebody gets hurt and needs to go to the hospital, I want you to have the power to throw them in your back seat and take them to the hospital as fast as you need to go. I have bought you a brand new vehicle that has the power to take you places in life. Yes. Give me the keys, Daddy. And he says, my requirement is that you grow up and when you're 15, you get a learner's permit. And you keep that for a year while you practice. And then you're going to go take a driver's test that you've studied for. And if you pass that, you get your driver's license. And then you're going to buy insurance on the car. And he gives you this list of rules. You will grow up and mature and learn how to handle the power that I've already paid for. That's my requirement. So you grow up and you don't have time for all that. And you got stuff going on and you got friends and you don't have time to study for the test and you don't do it. So dad doesn't give you access to the car. Say, dad, I'm 16. Where's my keys? Well, you haven't taken the test. You haven't done the requirements. You haven't gotten your driver's license. You haven't gotten insurance on the car. You haven't proven that you're old enough or mature enough to drive a vehicle. Well, I thought that was my car. It is. Well, I thought it was paid for. It is. But you can't access it because you're not mature enough. You would destroy yourself and other people if I gave you access to all of the power that I bought and paid for on the cross. My dad's mean. I prayed for years and never got what I was praying for. I prayed for a car. I need a car to, to walk out my purpose and I'm riding this old bus. Maybe you're not mature enough to access the power. We got to grow. We got to be faithful. We got to contribute to the house, to his family. To We, we got to grow up. We can't have the mindset of little kids. And see, the sad thing is, if you had the power, you had the car... And you're riding a bus because you've not paid the price. And then someone close to you gets hurt. You know, something bad happens and they need a ride to a hospital to save their life. And you can't help them. Because you've not paid the price to be where you need to be spiritually. When they go through a crisis or, you know, when they something bad happens... You should be able to help them. 
But you're not spiritually mature enough to help somebody else because you're still just taking, take, take, take. We got to grow up. We got to move on. We got to run up the hill. Take action. Create moments. Don't live in fear. Let's pray. God, thank you. God, thanks for grace and mercy. God, thank you that no matter how many times we messed up or no matter how many times we just choose to be selfish little babies that you keep giving us chances. You give us a redo, another try. And God, from this moment on, we're moving forward. We want to grow. We want to contribute. We, we want to be mature sons. We want to create epic moments. We want to see the ground shake. We want to see the earth move. God, thank you that you fight for us. You never fight against us, but that you love us. God, help us to, to be the light and to show you. Because when people see you in us, it makes them believe that you could live in them. When people see you showing up big for us against the odds, it gives them the faith to believe that you'll show up for them. That's the kind of witness we want to be. God, we love you. Thanks for your family. Thank you for connections. Thank you for life. In Jesus' name, amen.